Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? It's your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupri, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years, and now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Angela Yee, host of Angela Yee's Lip Service. If you listen to my podcast, you know I love making space for women to be themselves. That's why I'm excited to be part of Women Take the Mic, iHeartRadio's celebration of the women who make music, influence change, and create culture. All month long, your favorite voices from talk radio, music, and podcasting will highlight the remarkable achievements made by women and discuss the most significant issues facing us today. Head to iHeartRadio.com slash Women's Day for more. And listen to Women Take the Mic on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Megyn Kelly was a popular anchor on Fox News and NBC, but she may be remembered most for the reaction of the then-candidate Donald Trump to her tough questions during a Republican primary debate. He attacked her later by saying she had blood coming out of her wherever. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Megyn Kelly talks about President Trump, sexual harassment at Fox, and how she got into the news business. Megyn Kelly, nice to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Where are you? Are you in uh, New York or are you elsewhere? Yeah, I'm in my place. We live on the Upper West Side. Nice, nice. Now, where are you from? Upstate New York originally. Okay. Oh. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like a Midwesterner at heart. Oh, interesting. Kirsten Gillibrand's from up there too, yes? Yeah, 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 yeah. Upstate New York is like, it's pretty bucolic. It's quiet. It's very suburban. And, you know, it's like, I always kind of just thought I'd get married. Maybe, I don't know. I, well, I guess I'm a lawyer like you. So I thought I'd practice law in like a, maybe a small real estate firm or something and live a quiet upstate life, you know? This is, I don't think this is the life I was meant to be leading. Wait, did you did you really think that? Like, if I if I had met you in high school, you really thought that? I I don't know about high school. High school, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I had no ambition really. I just wanted to be popular. And then, um, by, by the time I got to law school, I thought I'll get a law degree. It'll legitimize me as a human. And then I probably I thought I'd settle in Syracuse, New York, where I went undergrad. And um, I liked Syracuse. I'm the one. And uh, I kind of thought I'd get a pretty house and marry a good-looking guy and 
do aerobics. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I had very small goals. So, like, so I, I love, I'm like one of these biography junkies, and there used to have this thing called Behind the Music. Did you ever see Behind the Music? Did you ever watch those that uh, used to have of course. back in the day? So where does where does your story do that? You know, those in Behind the Music, like, someone's always, like, rolling along, rolling along, and then all of a sudden they go that. When did you... When did you stop doing aerobics? I'll tell you exactly when it happened. Uh, it was second year of law school. And I know you you went to Stanford, which is not the same as Albany where I went. Um, but Albany is the Stanford of Albany. And um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was second. You know, you do your clerkship between your um, second and third year. And that's supposed to turn into your real job. You're supposed to get an offer from that firm for a permanent employment after you're done with school. And my firm and I was in Syracuse for it, did not make me an offer. I was like, oh my God. And I was at the top of my class. I was doing very well in law school. I did apply myself in law school. I couldn't believe I didn't get an offer. They were like, we're so sorry. We don't have the budget. We, you know, maybe we'll get the budget, but right now we can't offer it to you. And I was like, this is unbelievable. I don't believe a word they're saying. They just don't want me. And they don't have the heart to tell me. I went out in my car and I cried. And it felt like a, such a huge failure. And I went back to school and I was like, I have got to turn this around somehow. Like I've, I have to get a job. And all the firms coming on campus were the big New York firms, you know, that paid back then they started to do at 80 or $85,000 an hour, which was a fortune, <laughs> right? A fortune yeah. back in 1995. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to get one of those. I just got rejected for the $40,000 a year job. But there was one firm, Bickle and Brewer, that was at that level and and they paid well. It was like a boutique law firm, like the firm, you know, right, like right, that, yeah. where they yeah. only took one person every year from Albany that just won because Bill Brewer went to Albany Law School. So they would just take one. And I was like, maybe it could be me. So I put everything I could into getting that interview and getting that job. And I got it. I got it. And that that changed my whole career trajectory. Remind me what, or tell me, what was it like when they told you that you got it? Because it's one thing to want something. It's one thing to put all that effort in. But like 99% of the time, like people don't get the call that says you got it. So like, what was it like when, you, when they actually said, you're in, we want you? I, I couldn't believe my ears. I mean, I, there are two big things that happened. So they, after you have your interview on campus, if it goes well, they'll call you back. They only call back a very small amount of people to their headquarters, which are in Dallas, Texas. And I got a call back and I was like, okay, that's good. I don't want to blow it. It's not done yet. And they, so they flew me down there first class. I'd never been in an airplane first class, but barely been on a bunch of airplanes before, maybe three flights. Flew down there first class. They put us up at the mansion, which was, you know, the fancy hotel in Dallas. They kept the kind of place where they tell you how many threads are in the sheets. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh, why do I need to know how many threads are in the sheets? <laughs> <laughs> that is a certain kind of place where it's got thread count. That is a certain uh, kind of place. Okay. Uh, right? Yeah, like, right. does it have a sheet? Then I'm good. That's fine. As long as I'm not, you know, the plastic cup in the in the bathroom, I'm I'm not complaining. And um, we had dinner on the 50 yard line of Texas Stadium, which was crazy great. You know, it's like I was looking around like. So anyway, while I was down there on the interview, you meet with the lower sort of associates and then senior associates, but. They only have you see Bickle or Brewer, um, John or Bill, if they like you. So if they don't say, send her to John or send her to Bill, then you know it's not happening. And they did send me. I got to sit with Bickle. 
And I was like, oh my God, this is a good sign. It's a good sign. And um, it went well and I felt good about it. But then he called me personally to offer me the job. And I, I just knew, I knew it would change everything. It would change my life. Like it was my ticket forward. You know, I wasn't looking to get out, but forward, you know, to, to make use of this newfound academic drive I had and budding belief in myself that I might be capable of something bigger, something more for me. And he was like, and, and not only do we want to hire you, but we will put you in any office you want to go in. We have an office in New York. We have one in Dallas. We have one in DC. And we have one in Chicago. We would love for you to go to Chicago. And I was like, moving to Chicago. You know, it's like, I was from Albany. And Chicago is like with the twinkly lights and Michigan Avenue and the covered bridges and Lake Michigan. And it was like, I went, I put on Tina Turner. I drank Franzia box wine. And I looked out at a water view and said, I have arrived. Wow. Wow. Well, now was there was there anyone else around you who thought who thought a you were going to make it and b who was around when you arrived? No one thought I was going to make it. No, <laughs> I came up from a family that the messaging was basically, you don't really seem special so far, but we're very open mindedness to open open minded to specialness if you happen to exhibit it. So, and that's good. I I actually think my parents raised me right in that respect. Um, but my mom made me take typing twice because she's like, you, you're really going to need something to fall back on, honey. And so I come from excellent typer <laughs> to this day. Like no one, no one thought. I always laugh when I see the movie Legally Blonde is the dad says to Reese Witherspoon's character, um, law school, law school is for people who are boring and ugly and serious. <laughs> and you're none of those things, Button. <laughs> I think my mom was like, law school is for people who are serious, honey pie. Like, you you, you went to camp for aerobics and cheerleading. Like, they don't have cheerleading scholarships to law school. That is – so what is it like now when, when – because I've had this conversation with Arnold Schwarzenegger who said that 0% of the people thought he was going to make it. And he says he has the most interesting conversations now because everyone tells him, I always knew you were going to make it. And he was like, well, then why didn't you tell me? <laughs> so what is it like now when you're with people who probably, not that they wish you ill will, but like they just didn't expect, you know, as he said, sweetie pie. <laughs> it's for uh, boring, what do they call boring, ugly, and uh, serious people. Like what is it like now when you're around them? Are, are, they, are they blown away? Well, I would say... I, I'm more I'm more aligned with them. I'm I'm like, it's all going to go away tomorrow. I probably don't deserve to be here. You were right in the first place. I don't know how I got as far as I did, but fingers crossed it'll last a little longer. I'm more in that mentality. Like, you're probably right. I, I, I'm not exactly sure why anybody listens to me. I have a few ideas that I want to fight for. But anyway, lucky me. Like, I've never managed to get drunk on my own wine. I think it's because I had, you know, parents who were like, eh, you're fine. Um, and I think that's been a key to my success, frankly. You know, oddly, I think my ability to sort of keep my sensibilities in line with my upstate New York roots has been an advantage to me as a journalist, you know? So I hope, I hope that never changes. I hope I never start believing my good press. And I, although I'd like to stop believing some of my bad press too. <laughs> Thank you.
And so what was Fox like? Because I've always admired you from afar that you went from the law firm into journalism. What was Fox like? What was winning there like? Well, when I first started at Fox, it was funny because I had a friend who was connected at MSNBC and I happily would have gone there too. I called her. I'm like, do you think they have anything open? She's like, they don't. They won't hire somebody without reporting experience. I'm like, okay. And then a friend I met at uh, the, the correspondence dinner where I went for ABC that I was working for part-time said, you should get your tape to Fox. Anyway, long and the short of it is I got my tape there and they offered me a job. So I was like, great, I'll do it. So it was never ideological. You know, I'm, I'm pretty centrist in my views. I'm a little more center right. Now I get old, now I'm an old person. Um, but I, I'm center left on some things too. So for me, it was never ideological. I just wanted to report the news. And they hired me to cover the Supreme Court and just to be a general reporter. So I was like, great. I loved covering the Supreme Court. We had the Roberts confirmation hearing and the Alito confirmation hearing shortly after I got there. It was thrilling. I sat in the high court for two and a half years listening to all the oral arguments. I'm like, this is great. I don't have any of the pressures of being a lawyer doing it. And I have all the fun of then getting to talk about it and analyze it for people. So that's kind of how it started. And I, I liked that. I liked it a lot. So so who who gave you your break there? Was it Roger Ailes or was it someone else? Did you have a, a rabbi, a champion, a consulary who really kind of was pivotal to you taking off? Yeah. Well, Kim Hume is the one who interviewed me. She's married to Britt Hume, uh, and she used to run the D.C. Bureau. And so she's the one who first had me in, and boy, she held the cards close to the vest. Like, I sat with her for three hours, and she did not let on at all about whether I was getting this job. And I really thought for a long time. Wait, wait, wait. Maybe three, wait three hours? Literally? Three hours. It was like from huh. 9 a.m. to noon. And I thought, maybe she's just being kind to an up-and-coming woman. You know, this is like the pay-it-forward moment for her. Like, I'll help you. Let me talk about the industry. And then Britt Hume wa- comes by at noon. And she's like, Britt, meet Megan. And he's like, saw the tape. We all love you. How fast can we get you up to meet Roger Ailes? I'm like, <laughs> I love Britt. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. But that's but good. at Fox, no one got hired or got ahead unless they had Roger Ailes in their corner. So he he was definitely, you know, the the main person backing me and giving me opportunity there. And so how did you? Because I I appreciated you when you uh, raised the sexual harassment issues and when you were not afraid. And I think many of us in that same situation, I'm not sure we would have had. Uh, the courage of our convictions. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions on people, but I'm sure it was not easy. What, how was it for you in having to deal with him, given the complexity of that? And the whole thing was such a saga. You know, it, it began with, I just admired him and I was a little afraid of him because he was inspirational and funny and smart, but also a little scary. And then it morphed into a period of, I don't know, a year or so of harassment by him of me, direct undeniable harassment culminating in him trying to make out with me in his office three times. And when I wouldn't, he stopped me and said, when is your contract up? So it, it wound up in a scary place. Uh, I managed to navigate through it and that's a whole other story, but basically I avoided him and the problem went away. And, um, I, I did report it by the way, I reported it to a supervisor who, I never knew whether he did anything. I just knew it stopped. So that's all I wanted. I hired a lawyer just in case I got retaliated against. And I told my office mate, Major Garrett, um, 
uh, and then kept a detailed journal. And Major Garrett, he's at CBS News now as a White House correspondent, but he's backed me up on all of it. So it was just a tough situation where I, I didn't want to make a federal case out of it. I certainly didn't want to light the building on fire. I just wanted him to stop and to like just see me through professional eyes. And then he did. And we got past it and he gave me a lot of opportunity. Um, and most of them I did well on. You know, I, I, I never failed him. So he kept promoting me. And Britt and Kim were big backers of mine. And we got past it. I became good friends with him. I, I loved Roger, you know, in a weird way. I, I care for his wife. I care for his son. Doug and I, my husband, had been to their house for dinner many times. It was just, it was so complicated because I did deeply care for him. But then Gretchen filed that lawsuit. Gretchen Carlson filed that lawsuit. And, you know, I've said before, I wasn't her biggest fan. And that's fine. I mean, I don't think Gretchen's a bad person. I just, you know, we, we weren't tight. And I did care for him. So it's like, I don't know what I believe. And I hadn't been viewing him for all those 10 years as a serial harasser. I always thought it was like, he, he was about me. He wanted to go to bed with me, you know, hubris. And um, anyway, so I really wrestled with whether to speak up. And um, what made me finally do it was I got wind of the fact that, um, they were going to conduct an investigation, but only of the people who worked with Gretchen, which meant about six people, half of whom were guys, and all of whom were low-level producers, no talent. So I knew I wouldn't be called in there to tell a story. No one would ask me. No one would ask any other talent who would, who would have been alone in his office as I was. And that's what ultimately made me call Lachlan Murdoch and say, I don't know what he is but you need to find out. You need to actually try to find out now and do a real investigation. And they did. And he had been doing it to many others for many years and been getting away with it scot-free. And he had a team of protectors there who had been enabling him. What would you tell other people who may not be in the same situation, so it may not be sexual harassment, but there's some sort of situation where there's a power imbalance, where there's fear, where there's real risk, like, what, if anything, did you learn going through that? And I'm not looking, I don't have any preconceived notion of, of what I'm expecting to hear, but I'm literally curious as someone who actually went through it, didn't just read about it or watch it. Like, what have you learned and what would you say to other people who are going through something difficult, whether it's at work or in a relationship or on a sporting team or something else? Like, what did you learn about going through that kind of thing? I guess it depends on how you're built because... I could certainly look at the me that was wrestling with this decision uh, a couple of years ago and say, MK, <laughs> just keep your mouth shut. You're not really tight with Gretchen. You don't know what happened. This isn't your responsibility. You know, the system's going to look into it, this or they're not. You got a great job. You got a great future here. Everyone here likes you. You get along with them all. So just like keep your head down, your mouth shut. And I probably, if that had happened, maybe I'd still be at Fox. Would that have been a better version of me? No. And would that have been a better version of the world? No, I don't think so. But a lot, a lot of shit has come my way since then. I mean, like I, a lot of bad things have come my way since then too. And I can't say I regret any of it because all of that stuff, you know, all of those are ingredients into the cake and I, I am stronger for having gone through all of that. You know, now when life throws something at me, whether it's 
an adversary, an actual enemy, as I consider, for example, Steve Bannon, who just tried to completely tear me down after the Trump thing. Um, Whatever it is, you know, name calling the papers, the press, I'm, it's not that it doesn't affect me at all. I'm human, but like the more crap you have thrown your way that you emerge on the other side of, the more you're like, eh, I'm good. And more than any of that, I I followed my ethical compass. I followed my ethical compass. And so when I look in the mirror, I know who I'm looking at. I know what that person's values are. You know, I, it's, it's not that I don't, that I'm not a forgiving person. I'm actually very forgiving. I'm Catholic, but I also know what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, at the time back at Fox, for example, Gretchen, who I, again, was like, mm, she was twisting in the wind. And I, I knew she was raising a good question. So I'm sorry that I've lost friends at Fox because I didn't back him. People still are mad at me there, some people. But I know I did the right thing. In my heart, I did the right thing. And, and some people disagree. I have friends there who you know, have disowned me because they think I should have been loyal to him. I should have placed loyalty above you know, probing the question of whether we had a serial harasser on our hands. I don't see how you weight your values that way, but that's my own value system. So I followed my own ethical compass. And I think you know, if you do that at the end of the day, it may not be the least tumultuous life, but I think it's an enriched life. And I think it lands you in a place where you feel comfortable in your own skin. Do you think that's in no small part, because at least from the outside, it looks like you have a good marriage and healthy kids, meaning is that also a part of it too? And I, again, I don't want to project something on you that doesn't, it's not the thing, um, or I don't want to take from you what, what, what should be yours, but, but is that part of it for you as well? Or, or am, I, am I projecting something on you? No, you're, you're onto it. I mean, I appreciate you asking that question because that's huge. That's huge for me. And that's why I've always been so careful to nurture that, that part of my life because it is what actually matters. And, you know, one of the reasons I wound up leaving Fox News, notwithstanding the fact that I had lost some friends because of the Ailes thing, but uh, it was, I wasn't seeing my people. I wasn't seeing my kids. You know, I could see my husband because he had a flexible schedule, but I could not see my kids at all during the days and they were little. When I left Fox, they were seven, five and three. So I hadn't missed it. You know, I hadn't missed it yet. Um, but I, I remember saying uh, to my lawyer who I love, um, if, if this is my floor, you know, that I'm with Doug and my kids, if this is my floor, I'm good. I love my floor, you know, like I'm good. This is, this is as low as they can send me that I'm with my people, fine. I don't give a damn. I didn't grow up rich. I didn't grow up connected to anybody in power. Now I have this fancy apartment. I got all these books. What do I care about these books? These books can go away tomorrow. I can live in my little duplex apartment with my husband who I adore and my kids who are awesome. We'll go to public school. I'll work. I don't care. I'd work at a Starbucks. Not Starbucks. I don't like Starbucks. But I would work at a Barnes & Noble. <laughs> you know, like, I don't care. I want to be with them. I want to I not miss it. I, I want to live a good life. I, I want to see it happen. You know, my dad died at a very young age. And that's what I was doing. You know, just working at the office all the time and trying to prove something to myself that was stupid. That what? I was powerful, that I could do it, that I was tough enough. Who cares? How is that going to comfort me when my kids were graduating from high school, not knowing me? And I was going to be like, oh, but look at our lovely summer home. Like, 
who cares about that? So I do think having that intact and knowing it's intact emboldened me. And I'll say for the record, for the people out there like, screw you, thinking my marriage sucks and I don't want to hear about your great marriage. You too can change that. You know, you can either work on it and change the marriage you're in. You can do what I did, which is I got a divorce from my first husband <laughs> who I'm friends with, but we weren't meant to be married and greatly improved my life by choosing better the second time around. How did you meet uh, Mr. Wright? How did you meet Doug? Well, um, we were set up, but it was not long after I left my first husband and I was living in my own, I bought a little townhouse in our little townhouse development in Arlington, Virginia. And uh, it was the first time I ever really lived on my own as a grown up and thought, here I am. So this PR woman who worked with my husband and his company saw my husband, my now husband, Doug, watching me on the back of an airplane seat doing a report on the Duke, what we now know is the fake rape accusations. He went to Duke, so he was interested. And she's like, oh, you, you like her? He's like, oh. Anyway, long and the short of it is she contacted me and said, I got a guy, maybe you, you know, he's great, he's a CEO, he went to Duke, he went to Georgetown, so he sounded smart. Um, he's, he's not married. Meanwhile, I'm like, he's got to be gay because he's 34. He's never been married. He's that good looking. Like, there's no way. I don't want to get involved with a gay man. <laughs> and, and, um, I, I almost deleted it. It was too close to my leaving Dan. I was like, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready, but instead I, I hit save. And honestly, if I had hit delete, I, I would have deleted my future children. I would have deleted this life I'm, I'm living. Thank God I hit save. And a few months passed by and I started dating and I was like, oh, you know, and I was cleaning out the saved email uh, box and there it was. And um, I said, you know what? I actually, what I actually said was send me a picture. So she sent me a picture and I'm like, have him call me. So it was a blind date. We went out on, on it was blind-ish, you know, cause he had seen me on TV and I had seen a picture of him, but um, we went on a date on a date and it was like within a year we were engaged and within a year after that we had our first child. I love that. I love that. I love love stories. That's a good one. I like that and I like that you're still smiling uh, all these uh, all these years uh, later about that. Uh, and I hope he knows that. I'm sure he does. But uh but uh He does. Hey, you mind if I shift you to politics uh, for a second? No, not at all. Did you think Trump was going to win? If I, if I had, if you and I had been friendly and we had been sitting at a Barnes and Noble, not a Starbucks, and I had asked you in 2016 or late 2015, like, who do you think is going to win the nomination? You've been around lots of politics, lots of presidential campaigns. Who would you have told me? Who do you think was going to win? I did not think Trump was going to win. I totally thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. Uh, and in my defense, I was talking to people at Fox News all day who thought that, you know, and I thought these are his boosters. I mean, Sean Hannity, who was as close to Donald Trump as you could get, would say to me night after night, I can get him to 267, but I can't get him to 270. I just can't get him to 270. And I know no matter what he says now, he was as shocked as anyone when Trump wound up at 306. It was stunning. I'll never forget sitting on the set that night. With, with Brett Baer and Chris Wallace, and, and I think Trump won Florida, then Trump won North Carolina, and maybe he won Michigan. I can't remember, but it was another one of those states he wasn't supposed to win. And Chris Wallace said, 
I, I think we're all coming to the realization that Donald Trump could be the next president of the United States. And it was like, you're right, we are coming to that realization. Oh my God. Because you, I, I had just never even considered that he could actually do it. I just didn't, I, like Sean, I couldn't see the math. And then there was this huge, huge sort of graphic board uh, in the studio. And it said, Donald Trump elected 45th president of the United States. And it was like, <laughs> right? You have that, like, the guy, the guy who does Celebrity Apprentice? That's so crazy. And then in my case, of course, it had extra meaning because he had been bullying me for nine months. So it was a little like, what does that mean for, you know, me personally? There's that layer. I mean, we had made up by that point, but certainly there was a part of me thinking my bully just got elected president of the United States and how's that going to shake out? But it was surreal. The whole thing was surreal. And, and, and how did you respond when he said that thing? Because when he said that thing to you and still didn't go down in the polls, that's when I knew that he could win. That's what convinced me that he could win the nomination when he went after you, who I saw as one of the favorites on the right by virtue of your position at, at Fox News. I thought, wow, this guy's got more Teflon than I thought he had. I was confused by it at first. I was confused why there wasn't a negative reaction when he attacked John McCain, you know, who's still living, but, you know, he said he wasn't a war hero. He attacked me. He attacked the Gold Star family. And I thought, I, like, I don't understand why a Republican base doesn't react to this. But now I do understand. Now I understand it very well. And I get it. And I actually kind of, I, I see why they liked him so much. I don't think it was, yeah, we hate Megyn Kelly or we hate John McCain or we hate a Gold Star family. I think it was just the guy doesn't give a damn. He'll go after anyone. He's a fighter. And if we send him to Washington, he's going to fight for us. He, he won't care what the press writes about him. He won't care what the norms are the way a Mitt Romney would. He cares about us and he talks like us and he's gruff and rough around the edges like us. And so we don't judge him. We're, we're hiring, him to, hiring him to go break the China, be the bull. And we're not hiring some sweet little pleasant old lady who's not going to touch the China, right? Like, so it's not that they like the target of the of the attacks being attacked. You know, nobody wants a gold star family attacked. Um, it's that they liked his pugilistic nature, and the fact that he was just unafraid and unbowed by anything that smelled like establishment. Hey, tell me why you started this podcast. What what made you start the podcast, and what have you discovered as a podcaster? Well, I I started it because I wanted to be able to talk about the news in an unfettered, unbridled way. You know, I feel like more and more we're telling people they have to be quiet or they have to use certain words or not use certain words or don't touch that subject. Or if you touch it, you have to talk about it in this way. And it's, it's not in my nature. I'm not built that way. And I don't like it. I, I don't like cancel culture and I don't like parameters, false parameters being put around speech. I'm, I'm almost a first amendment absolutist. Um, and I, I'm worried about what's happening happening to the country along these lines. So I think it's worth fighting for, you know, and I wanted a forum that I would control so that I would not be cancelable, right? So I could have all these discussions without fear of advertisers or activist groups. And I have to say, it's wonderful. It's, it's great. You know, now I'm in a place where we can talk about anything and I'm, I'm not crass and I'm not cruel. I try to do it in a thoughtful way, but there's no third rail. 
you know, I'll go anywhere. I love it. Talk to me about this past summer. How did you think about Black Lives Matter and all the conversation around that? Was that something that surprised you, excited you, you've leaned into? How did you, how did you, how did you encounter and think about that? Well, when George Floyd was killed, and I think a lot of black people and white people were deeply affected by that tape in a way earlier tapes hadn't done. You know, like there was something different about this one. And I saw like our two of our closest friends are mixed race couple. The, the wife is white and the husband is black. And the husband never was an activist of any kind, really never talked about his race much. He, he's just sort of a gunner. You know, he just went after it, got himself up out of a tough neighborhood. And now he's ruling Wall Street and all self-made. And he... I think in part the reason he did it is because he wasn't too focused on identity politics. He was just like driven, you know, but even he really started to stop and talk about it. You know, like, what does this say? What are my own experiences? How does this fall in with the narrative of my own life? And I listened to him and my husband listened to him and our friends did and, and, and more than just him, but others. And when I saw the riots unfold, my first instinct was I, I sent out a tweet about, how can we ask people to respect law and order and, and sort of the balance of decency when we don't live that, when we don't live that and, that, and we don't make that their experience? That was my first reaction. As the summer went on, I began to feel very differently. You know, as it morphed into more of a political movement where to me it seemed co-opted by activists as opposed to just people who want to change and some, some reform in law enforcement to turned into defund the police, which I know having done my research is something most black people are against and will hurt black women and children in particular in the inner cities. And like the stuff with flipping over the tables and making people raise the fist, it was like, this is not the way. This is not the way to get buy-in on, you know, what started as I think an, an earnest effort to improve black lives right? Black lives. And once it got more organized and political and I think intrusive into people, peace, peaceful people, uh, you know, they're stopping black people driving their cars in the street, making them raise the fist. And you see black people getting out of their cars being like, I'm with you. What are you doing to me? You know, like that stuff was very alienating. Um, and so my feelings on it have morphed because I think it's become more of a political movement. And certainly the, the organizers of it have an agenda that I don't, I don't support. So I feel like it was, it was a wasted opportunity because I felt like we were much more unified in the wake of that death than we are right now. And um, I don't know, in, in a way, I, I feel about it the way I feel about the Me Too movement, where it started nobly and then it morphed into something that wasn't going to be all that helpful because it got co-opted by politics it, it wound up alienating, I'm talking about the Me Too movement, it wound up alienating the very group we most need to have buy-in on our progress, men. You know, men are now afraid of us. <laughs> they're afraid to put us at the executive suite because they're worried we're going to use the Me Too movement unjustly to ruin a 30-year career. And it's not like every woman has done that. It's just enough of that kind of stuff has happened that they're scared no matter what they say publicly because I know what they say behind the scenes. And I think the reality of our, our racial struggle right now, in part, is 
for black people to ascend in a meaningful way, and I realize we've had a black president, we have black Supreme Court justice, we have black senators, but in a me more meaningful way to the top of corporations and positions of power in America, the truth is you need white buy-in too, right? And so like, it has to be a collective, collaborative approach. I'd love to scream it from the rooftops, right? But it, it doesn't seem to be going that way in either department. And I sort of feel like I'm in the middle, like, wait, wait, let's, let's keep talking. Let's stop judging. Let's, you know, let's not be cruel. Let's be open-minded and let's say all the stuff we're afraid to say. I would love, I love it when a man comes to me and says like, should I open the door for a woman? Like, can I compliment her appearance at all? Like, what should I say? If, what should I do if she tries to hug me? I, I don't necessarily have all the answers to that from like feminism central, but I'd love to talk about it. I'd love it when somebody asked me that. You know, and I talked to my pal Coleman Hughes, who I don't know if you know him, but he's a genius. He's 24. He's a liberal, happens to be a black man. He doesn't love the Black Lives Matter mission for similar reasons to my own, but he wants to talk about it. You know, he, he just said to me the other day on my pod, I'd much rather have a white person come on who sometimes makes errors or doesn't talk about race issues totally gingerly, right? Than a white person who says everything perfectly and I have no idea how they really feel. You know, I just feel like race, to some extent, misogyny has gotten to the point where like, you can't even talk about it so you can't learn, you know, without feeling judged. And if anybody who's feeling judged doesn't learn, they're at like, so that's one of my missions, keep talking. Even if you, even if you fall down then you get back up and keep talking. If someone pushed you on that and said, I hear you and I hear your heart and I hear your spirit, but that making the big change that's needed sometimes is messy and let's not worry about the messy because what's behind there is so important. What would you say back to them? They'd say, I completely hear you and no one wants stuff to go off the rails. No one wants people to feel judged, but this is so difficult, so important. Police reform, education reform, economic opportunity that we've got to allow for some messiness. What would you, what would you say to them? I'm not against some messiness. I mean, I remember in the Me Too movement, I was talking about, can't we have proportionality? You know, Ben Affleck, who made the mistake of grabbing a woman's breast, which was just stupid, is not the same as Harvey Weinstein. You know, there's no, nothing good comes from pretending that he is. Um, and you don't condemn him as a man, as a human for a stupid error. Same thing you could say about Al Franken. You know, I mean, there is a scale uh, of sin and, and missteps. Uh, but I remember saying to my other friends, as we were talking about the need for proportionality, we'll get to that when the bomb throwing phase of our revolution is over. You know, like, and I, so I got that when I was watching sort of some of the Black Lives Matter stuff this summer, maybe this is the bomb throwing phase of the revolution and things will settle to where we can actually be reasonable in talking to one another. But I will say the more I talk to, you know, black intellectuals on the left and the right, the more I worry about whether we're going to get there on issues of identity politics, because there are real data, for example, when it comes to police and, and their behaviors. And if you raise that with activists, not with sort of people who are just want to want to engage, then they tell you that they don't want to hear your data because it's contrary to their lived experience. You know, and it's like, well, how are you supposed to argue against that? It's like, well, the facts are what the facts are, right? The cops make between 10 and 11 million arrests a year. Um, the vast majority of them go off fine. In 2019, there were 14 unarmed black men who were killed by police out of those 11 million arrests. 
Um, there were 24 white men unarmed who were killed. The ultimate percentage of that is about 35% of the unarmed men who were killed were black. Blacks only make up 13 to 14% of the population. So I get that it's disproportionate, but blacks make up 60% of the violent crime rate in our major cities. So, you know, usually the cops go where they're called. It's usually a, a community uh, started call that determines where they show up. All that stuff is fraught. It's, it's fraught to discuss. They are facts. They're knowable. The black intellectuals I've been listening to all summer talk about them. More difficult as a white person. I don't know. I, I like the spaces where you, we can talk about it like you and I are right now. And then the other person can say, oh, well, what about this? And you say your stuff. Maybe there's not an agreement, but there's listening. There's like a little understanding. And even that is progress. Megan, here's my last question, given all that. Are you going to run for office? And if so, what and when? Ah, definitely not. Uh, talk about jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. Uh, I'm too happy a person for that. You know, I, I got my babes. I got my husband. No, I could see you enjoying doing it. I think in particular because of what you said earlier. Someone who feels comfortable in their own skin, someone who is intellectually curious, someone who does want to engage, I... I I could see you doing it. I'm not even, am I wrong? I mean, I know what the politic answer would be, but I, it, it feels to me like I would be surprised if you didn't run. Oh, wow. Well, I don't even know what I'd run as. I don't know. You know I'm a registered independent. I, I feel like the country might be moving a little leftward. And so maybe I'm, be, maybe I'm more of a Republican just because the party's going, you know, like the country's going over here. But I, I've always seen myself as a centrist. And I've been a registered Democrat, too and a registered Republican. I don't know what I am, a soulless lawyer, I think is what we're really finding out. I wanna be persuaded. I like to hear both arguments. I like facts, I like data, I like to be persuaded by strong arguments. I guess I shouldn't say no, never, because under the right circumstances if a country needed me, I suppose there might be a circumstance, but I really related to Oprah Winfrey when everybody was pressuring her to run, uh, who I love and who is brilliant and really one of my, one of the people I most admire for her life philosophy and wisdom. And, and what she said was, you know, I, it's not in me, you know, to sort of throw myself into there. And I get what she means. She's really not political by nature. Um, but I think the bottom line is Oprah lives in a ranch called the promised land. Oprah has a great life. Oprah doesn't want to be in the paper every day as an awful person, right? Because that's what happens to, to you when you run. You know, like you get demonized, you know, obviously Trump. AOC, you know, if you at all, are at all strong, right? Like Joe Biden's a little bit more mild. So maybe he hasn't gotten it quite as bad, but he has too. Like a lot of bad stuff's been said about him, his family. Why do I want that? I could sit here. I could read my books. I could watch my real housewives. You're going to do it, I predict. I think you're going to run for Senate. And I, I, I think it's coming in the next two to four years. Wow. But hopefully we will talk before then. I, I believe it. I think it's going to happen. Well, thank you for the encouragement, um, I think. I don't know. Maybe if I did it and I, and I won, I'd probably call you up and yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that. Hey, Megan, I'm so grateful. I, I, hope this, I literally hope this won't be the last time. There's 12 million other things I know that I want to talk to you about. And I know uh, your team's saying you got to go. So that's the only reason I'm, um, I'm letting it go. But, uh, but I hope you will come back. And I hope, I hope we'll have kind of lots more uh, conversations going forward. Anytime. I would love that. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Lots of love. 
Ozzie checked the numbers of police killings in the U.S. in 2019. According to the Mapping Police Violence database, more than 1,000 people were killed by the police that year. 406 of the victims were white, 259 of them were black. We have also checked the number of people arrested for committing violent crimes in 2019. According to the FBI, 59% of them were white and 36% were black. Thank you for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please let your friends know about us. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday... My newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, what's up? This your boy, Jerry Clark, and I am the host of Storytime with Legendary Jerry Podcast. For the last 30 years, I have worked with some of your favorite artists, like Outkast, Killer Mike, Jeezy, Akon, Jermaine Dupree, and so many, many more. Storytime with Legendary Jerry is an ode to the South. Southern rap has had the game on lock for years. And now I'm telling you legendary stories of how we did it. Listen to Storytime with Legendary Jerry on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.